Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I am very excited about our show today. We have two representatives from the leadership team at the Collaborative for High Performance Schools. And this is an organization I have respected for as long as I can remember. And I've been in this industry since 2002. This is a top-notch organization that helps schools not only go green, but actually create optimal healthy uh, learning environments for students and work environments for teachers. I mean, they really have a set of criteria that's based upon the best research, based upon the best subject matter experts in the field. And they have just released a brand new set of core criteria. And I am so excited to have Elizabeth and Lisa on with us today to talk about the Collaborative for High Performance Schools, to talk about these new standards and the process they went through to develop them and, and all the benefits that schools can reap by being part of the Collaborative for High Performance Schools. So let's begin with Elizabeth. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I am so glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Jill. It's great to be here. Well, I would love to begin by having you talk to our listeners about the Collaborative for High Performance Schools. I'd love for you to give us some background on the history and the mission of CHIPS. Sure. Our mission is really simple. We are out there to make every school an ideal place to learn. We, of course, have a longer, more formal one, but that's the nugget of it. Uh, CHIPS got its start 20 years ago in California out of a simple conversation among people from the California Energy Commission and utility representatives in the state about how schools really needed help to do better with their energy use. And that um, came on the eve of a wave of school construction in the state of California. So what happened is those people created an initiative that they called CHIPS to help those new school projects with energy efficiency and other topics that would make the buildings better. Um, The organization officially incorporated as an independent 501c3 in 2002, and shortly uh, thereafter, stakeholders in other states started asking us how they could do what we were doing. So there was a period of time when we were licensing our content to other states, but still focused primarily on our work in California. And then in 2008, we decided, hey, we should really go national um, because there's a need out there and we can help. So we officially expanded our membership and our services at that time. And to this day, we are still serving all of all 50 states in the District of Columbia with our criteria and our materials. And we have 13 states using their own locally adapted versions of our criteria. I love it. And I, like I said before, I have so much respect for your organization. And I'm excited to dive into the details of the new updates to the core criteria. But before we do, I want our listeners to have a better understanding of, of who is involved. And so, Lisa, welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you on as well. Thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here as well. Um, as our name suggests, Chips. Yeah, I'd love for you to talk to us about the membership that's involved in CHIPS and give us an idea of who's involved mm-hmm. and additionally, maybe even more importantly, who could be involved if they're not already with CHIPS. Okay. Um, as our name suggests, CHIPS is a truly collaborative organization. Our members and partnership network are composed of schools and school districts across the United States 
educational advocacy groups, government agencies, utility companies, architects and design firms, construction professionals, high-performance product manufacturers, researchers, and just concerned individuals from across the U.S. Um, this is a very diverse group, but it's they've all come together to work towards one common goal, as Elizabeth said, to uh, make every school an ideal place to learn. And we're always looking to expand our audience and to and outreach to new school districts and regions. Um, currently, we are promoting our impact campaign. During this fundraising drive, we are seeking sponsorship support for our many ongoing initiatives, such as updating our state-specific and regional criteria, our best practice manu- manuals, and benchmarking tools for schools. Um, donations to CHIPS are a great way, for example, for concerned individuals and parents to get involved in their local community and to help support our advocacy activities in their schools. And if you're a private foundation, you can get involved by helping us fund research projects or using CHIPS as an outreach vehicle for your own research. If you're interested um, in learning more about the impact campaign, we have a web page set up at www.chips.net forward slash impact campaign, or you can contact us directly to learn more. Awesome. Well, thanks, Lisa. Elizabeth, back to you. You know, we've been talking about uh, your mission, which is awesome, making every school an ideal place to learn. Talk to us about some of the research that you that you all use and that you uh, produce that has proven that kids learn better in a healthy, well-designed school that's well-operated. Absolutely. And we, and by that I mean the collective we of everyone in the school community, has known for a long time what makes for a great learning environment. There is research that goes back many decades demonstrating the impacts that noise, light, access to the outdoors, room temperature, air quality, water quality, dust and pests and safety features have on children in schools. Um, And those are the big factors that affect students. They are largely easy to study, which has been hugely important for everyone's understanding about how to create that ideal learning environment. Um, So let me just take a moment to impress upon everyone just what the physical, uh, just excuse me, why the physical environment is so critical for children. We tend to think of pedagogy or teachers or language or socioeconomic factors as being the drivers of student success, but there is a large body of evidence showing that the physical environment of the school is at least equally important. So children, as you probably realize, even up to high school when they're considered, some are considered legally adults, they don't have the same physiology as adults. They have unique sensitivities and needs that adults don't have. And children can be harmed by something in the classroom environment that an adult might not even notice. So that's not to say, of course, that adults aren't affected or that their health and well-being aren't equally important, and there are studies being done on their best interests, too, but children are more susceptible. So we see one of our most important roles as fostering research on this topic and helping spread the results. Uh, And we have a couple ways we do that. One is that we are open to partnering uh, with research institutions, and we have done so on many occasions, um, such as public health schools. And what, um, our partnership typically involves us sharing our project data or facilitating their surveys to our stakeholders or promoting their work on our website. Um, and we definitely incorporate their results into our materials and our practices. 
And then another way we do it, which we're really excited about because it's brand new and it's awesome, um, we just created a clearinghouse on our website that we call the Knowledge Library. We just launched it earlier this year. Um, It's a very simple list of research from both the U.S. and abroad, and we regularly update it and we invite people to suggest new items, so anyone out there listening who has a topic they want to see listed can go ahead and let us know about it. Um, and you can find it just by going to chips.net and looking on under the Our Resources menu. So that's a great thing, a great place to start if anyone is looking to become informed. And I, would, I just want to point out, I would really, if I have a moment, I would really encourage sure. people to check out two reports. One is from 2017. It was done by Harvard University's Chan School of Public Health team. They have a whole initiative on healthy schools. Um, in 2017, they published a truly excellent report summarizing evidence to date on all the factors I named earlier. And then the second item is from back in 2007, but it, at the time it was a landmark study. It was done by the National Research Council. It's also a summary of research to date at that time, Um, and it was funded by one of our partners, the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative, deliberately for the benefit of the high-performance schools movement. So that really, really informed everybody about what we need to be doing. That is fantastic. Thanks, Elizabeth. Now, Lisa, I think it's important for our audience to understand that these newly released core criteria that you all have just put out um, were really... uh, uh, quite an exercise in rigor, and uh, there were a lot of great people involved. Talk to us about who was involved in developing the new core criteria and the rigorous process that CHIPS used to establish this new tool for schools. Uh, Sure. Um, The uh, CHIPS core criteria and its national, state, and regional adaptations are all developed by our National Technical Committee. The committee has approximately 60 members. Uh, They're comprised of a mix of CHIPS members, uh, including school districts, education advocates, professional practitioners, and researchers. There are also six subcommittees to this um, technical committee. Um, They're broken out according to the major chapters of our criteria guidelines, which are uh, integration and innovation, indoor environmental quality, energy, water and site materials, waste management, and operations and metrics. Each subcommittee is comprised of professionals from across the United States uh, who have extensive training and experience in their specific practitioner fields. And the update process is multifaceted. Um, the first and you know what? I really want to get into that. After the first uh, break, uh, we've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, I want mm-hmm. you to dive uh, deeply into that. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. If you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guests today are representatives from the Collaborative for High Performance Schools, also known as CHIPS. We have Elizabeth um, Crouchide and Lisa Dunneback, and they're going to be talking to us about a brand new set of core criteria that they've just released. Before we went to break, Lisa, you were talking about the process that CHIPS used to establish the new tools, and I wanted to give you a second to finish that up before we start launching into what those core criteria actually entail. So finish that up, please. Uh, sure, of course. Um, yeah, uh, uh, usually how this starts out, the uh, updating process involves a creation of a first draft that is uh, done by our National Technical Committee. Um, they go through a thorough evaluation of updating um, current reference standards and they also take a critical look at industry practices and determine which are the most current best practices in the school industry. Uh, the committee also looks at timely topics such as toxin-free plumbing, which is a newly added item to this year's update. 
And once this first draft is prepared, it undergoes a peer review process by an invited group of industry experts from um, CHIP, our professional network and partners. And a second draft is compiled from this review, which is then open for two public review periods. And updating this type of comprehensive criteria generally takes about 12 to 16 months to complete. And CHIPS does this type of update about every five years. However, we have found that some... Some technologies can change more quickly than this, so we do publish smaller issue-specific updates as they arise. You're so thorough. And and I love that. And Elizabeth, I want to switch to you because I want to make sure our listeners who are part of school communities understand what the value is of seeking CHIPS verified leader status. What are the advantages of that level of recognition? Yeah, good question. Verified leader is our highest level of recognition for new school buildings or for those that undergo a major renovation. We offer three paths for recognition, starting with something we call CHIPS Designed. That's uh, simply a hybrid program where the uh, design team gets to self-certify just about everything they've done, but we ask them to send us a narrative so that we can give them a stamp of approval. Next up is CHIPS Verified, which is our standard level of vigorous review of full documents documentation and drawings and every material that they put into the building. Um, And then above that, of course, is verified leader. And we offer that for schools that truly want to be inspirational and achieve the highest possible level of environmental quality. It takes about 50% more effort in order to earn verified leader than it does CHIPS verified. So it's it's kind of a big deal. Um, And even though it's more difficult to achieve, what we're seeing is that it definitely has advantages. The most obvious one, of course, is it's a higher status and a higher claim to fame. I think school staff find it really nice to be able to say that you're a leader. Uh, There's also, there's the lower carbon and environmental footprint and the associated benefits like um, saving money on your utility bills. Another advantage we've seen in the past, it's not quite so common anymore, is that sometimes a funding authority will offer an extra incentive payment for those extra points, um, and that might motivate schools to seek verified leader. Um, But I think also what we're seeing now is that the, the people at the schools themselves want to align with other exciting movements, such as zero energy schools and zero waste schools. And so CHIP's verified leader level aligns perfectly with those other types of claims. I love it. And Elizabeth, I want to ask you another question because I'm ready to dive into some of the specifics of the new core criteria that I really think our in, our listeners will be interested in. Let's talk about district level commitment. What does the CHIPS core criteria require and why is district level commitment so vital? District level commitment is about institutionalizing high performance goals so that it goes so that really what happens is it goes beyond say an individual who might be the designated green champion um, that happens a lot and it's very important for there to be a, a single leader or someone who's responsible but what happens if that person takes a job in another district for instance so a district level commitment is a policy or a resolution adopted by the governing authority of the school or the district and it doesn't have to be a district it can be an individual school um, but the governing authority adopts the resolution and then And that way, it becomes a written record and a written policy that 
can be referred to for every purchasing decision. For example, if a new product or new equipment needs to be installed, it can be used to leverage standard specifications when you're talking about a major construction project or even to um, inform how you do your ongoing monitoring and tracking of issues that are in the building. So for us, it's um, what we ask them to do is either... Uh, make a commitment to use the CHIPS high-performance criteria in all of their major capital projects, or they can make a commitment to use our ORC, our Operations Report Card, to, in their existing school buildings for benchmarking and monitoring. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Lisa, I wanted to talk to you about a section of the core criteria that I found very fascinating. It's called crime prevention through environmental design. Uh, talk to us about that section of the core criteria. Uh, yes, CHIPS and uh, its affiliated partners such as A4LE um, recommend and have adopted the crime prevention through environmental design principles that's often referred to in the industry as SEPTED. They are currently the best standard that we have for school security design and have been successfully implemented in schools already across the country. These principles focus on reducing crime opportunities promoting positive social behavior, and improving the quality of uh, the overall learning environment. Um, Some examples include uh, clear sight lines between interior rooms and circulation spaces, adequate lighting at places where uh, students are picked up and dropped off, um, eliminating concealed and isolated routes between buildings, and in general, creating a sense of pride and ownership throughout the school through good maintenance and management practices. These strategies, for example, are in sharp contrast to implementing um, a lot of uh, procedures that have been known as hardening measures, such as armed security patrols, razor wire fences, or barred windows. Um, Chips and our partners really don't advocate hardening measures as they haven't really had been proven over time to be very effective. Um, nor are they considered to be in in good practice in the school learning environment. Understood. Yeah, that's very interesting. Elizabeth, you know, we talked a little bit about how schools are trying to go for things like zero net energy or zero waste. Um, But I would love for you to talk to us about the low zero greenhouse gas emissions school section of the core criteria. This is fascinating. I'm so glad you're asking about this because I can really geek out on it, so I'll try to (laughs) restrain myself. Um, While we always make a point to prioritize evidence-based criteria, this is an example of when we do adopt something that's emerging and aspirational um, and, and we know it will evolve because we know the outcome is worth it. So our low and zero GHG schools credit is designed to address a nuance that not many people may be aware of. A zero energy school is one that offsets all of its electricity use through renewables, but that means it's not necessarily a zero carbon or zero GHG building because, by definition, a zero energy building can still use fossil fuels, like natural gas for heating or cooking. So when we look at it from the side of greenhouse gases, it means thinking about more than just energy efficiency. So what we've done is we've written the credit to give school decision makers a number of options. They can either follow some options that get them to what we would call low carbon or they can go a carbon-free path. To go low carbon, what they would, what we're asking them to do is construct an all-electric super-efficient building. 
Um, and that way, they're using um, a lot of approaches that are good to maintain over time and create a healthy environment, but, we're, but they're not necessarily committing to using renewables. Um, the, to go carbon-free, they would simply have, take that all-electric, super-efficient building, and then they would offset 100% of their energy use, which is all-electric, of course, by e- either using on-site or off-site renewables. And then there are a couple other options for additional points. Um, One is called low-embodied carbon materials. That's that's a very technical topic we don't have to get into, but it basically just means that the industry is starting to make that information available and it is possible to find those products. Um, And the last one is that we address the fact that air conditioning is here to stay, but refrigerants are still very problematic. So it's the catch-22 of climate change, right? The more our weather heats up, the more AC we install, the more AC we use, the more we add greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. So even though the technology in air conditioning and refrigeration isn't there yet on a mass scale to do clean cooling, um, what we've said in our criteria is that schools can get credit for avoiding the worst kind of a refrigerant. Got it. Got it. And, you know, so many of our students these days are really becoming involved in um, combating climate change. You know, they're they really looking for an outlet. Um, some are marching, some are going on strike and things like that. And they, they really want to be involved. And I don't think that it occurs to them sometimes that their school community can actually be part of mitigating greenhouse gas emissions in their own community and also part of a community's adaptation strategy. We see in areas where there have been some of the precursors that we expect to increase as a result of climate change, things like floods and things like wildfires and and droughts and whatnot, when school buildings become a community refuge um, and become part of the community's what will be the community's climate adaptation strategy. When we come back, Lisa, I'm going to ask you to talk about part of the core criteria that address that very issue. But we've got to take a quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. We've got more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone. 
and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking with the leadership of the Collaborative for High Performance Schools. Elizabeth Krautscheid and Lisa Dunneback are with us. And we're talking about a brand new product they've released. It's their Core Criteria 3.0. And this is kind of a, a comprehensive, one of the most panoramic guides that a school or a school district could follow in order to create, very simply, but so profoundly, the ideal learning environment. Doesn't that sound wonderful if every child could learn in a school that was the ideal learning environment? And these core criteria cover such a wide uh, range of topics. And we've been diving into some of the details, but in the time that we have on Go Green Radio, we can't possibly cover them all. But if you want to check it out, you can simply go to chips, that's chps.net, and there you can find all the information and actually download for free their new core criteria. Before the break, Lisa, we were talking about how many students these days are, are really you know, desirous of getting involved with combating climate change, and, and actually they can do that at their schools by being part of their school's impact on climate. And so I'd love for you to talk to us about the section in your new core criteria called Design for Adaptation and Resilience. Okay. Um, yes. In this uh, section of the CHIPS criteria, um, de- resiliency is defined in, in, actually defined in two different ways. Um, number one, as a building resiliency, which is the ability of the school to withstand and or bounce back after an extreme weather event or natural disaster or the ability to adapt the school building for another purpose, such as an emergency community shelter. And the second definition is as an energy resiliency, which is the ability of the school to be easily converted for another energy source, such as solar energy. Since uh, a well-maintained building designed today should last about 60 to 100 years, It is necessary to plan for the future events caused by climate and weather changes and the implementation of new technologies over time. So this credit is really involved, so I'm not really going to go into a lot of detail on it, but what's important to know is that the credit is, is designed specifically to acknowledge work in districts with extreme weather events and to help other districts prepare for the future. For example, recently one of our board members, Roy Sprague, from the Cypress Fairbanks School District, published an article on how his Houston area schools have adapted for hurricane resiliency. Historically, CHIPS has been in the practice to learn from others and 
others' experience and incorporate that knowledge into our criteria. So if you're interested in learning more about um, how Houston's um, hurricane resiliency process panned out, you can find this particular article posted on our website, again, at chips.net. Very cool. Very cool. Elizabeth, you know, any of us who've been in whether they're offices, homes, or schools where there's something off about the ventilation and the indoor air quality, whether it's smells or humidity or it's too hot, too cold, what have you, we know that that is an important part of of our ability to focus. And it's so critical for students to be able to focus that, that that ventilation and indoor air quality is good. Talk to us about that section of the CHIPS core criteria update. Right. It's a great topic. So important. So IAQ is just one part of a healthy indoor environment, but it's, as you've said, it's definitely one of the most important. And as I mentioned earlier when we were talking about research, we know for a fact that people in a building, and children in particular, are susceptible to being harmed by something in the air. Um, think about asthma. Asthma can be triggered by dust or airborne pollutants, and asthma attacks are a leading cause of absenteeism in schools for both children and adults. Um, Too much CO2 in the room can make people sleepy, and you wouldn't necessarily even guess that that was the problem. So while we've always given us a lot of weight to the best practices that contribute to good IAQ, like proper ventilation, we've beefed up our ventilation credits this time around um, because we know it's, it's truly important. So now we offer up to 15 points for additional measures above the standard. Um, For instance, if a school installs a system that brings in extra outside air, they get to claim more points. Um, Now, I know that in some locations, the outdoor air isn't great, and you might argue that that's not such a good idea, but um, we do know that indoor air is even worse. So what we do is we have high requirements also for the quality of filters that are used in the system, and there is emerging and exciting technologies coming out that are available to address this problem in other ways, and we would recognize those as potentially getting credit for innovation, for example. Um, And those practices are part of design and construction of, of a new building or a renovated building. But let's not forget that during maintenance and ongoing operation of an existing building, all of this is critical too. So in our approach, in our operations and metrics section, we ask school staff to learn how to properly operate and maintain the equipment and to get in the habit of taking measurements and tracking what's going on in the building so they can take action on problems quickly. I love that. I love that. You know, Lisa, um, back to you, even in schools where, you know, and this is a big problem in the East Coast and some of the, um, you know, communities that were built long before those of us out on the West Coast, you know, had cities, they have lead service lines. And so we've all read about the damage that that can do to children who ingest you know, water that, that has lead in it. But even in schools that have no lead service lines in their drinking water system, um, they can have lead in their plumbing fixtures. I'd love for you to talk to us about the toxin-free plumbing section of the core criteria 3.0. Uh, yes, this is a very timely topic. And um, as a result, we've just added it to this year's criteria update. Um, As far as we know, um, we are the only school rating system that contains criteria on this topic, and it is a critical issue for schools and for children. Um, Resurgent interest in this topic was spurred by the release of EPA's 2018 updated guidelines regarding lead levels in school drinking water. Unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do to enforce schools to replumb their existing buildings, 
However, the CHIPS criteria can still address it in two ways. Um, First, by encouraging schools doing major renovations that include removal of their plumbing to replace it with toxin-free plumbing, or secondly, by asking all schools to agree to test their water annually for lead. This policy aligns with current state and local efforts to reduce lead in schools, according to a 2018 GAO report on the subject. And if you want further details um, on the, or, or you want to read the full GA, GAO and EPA reports, um, they can be found in our knowledge library on, our, on the CHIPS website. Very cool. Uh, primarily, we wanted to be ahead on this topic and take a leadership stance in this area. The CHIPS criteria gives credits to schools that are go- doing something either in terms of installing toxin-free plumbing or c- committing to testing their water annually. That is awesome. Um, and I want to shift topics from plumbing to lighting because, Elizabeth, I often see <laughs> schools address lighting exclusively through the lens of energy efficiency. Like if they install uh-huh. LEDs, check, we've addressed lighting. But I would like for you to talk to us about the section in the core criteria that's entitled electric lighting performance and circadian lighting. Talk to us about that. Yeah. LEDs are great for efficiency, and there's, of course, there's nothing wrong with installing them for that reason, um, and the technology is very exciting. But yes, they aren't necessarily great on our eyes, and in fact, we do not require that a school install LEDs. There are other ways they can achieve efficiency in their lighting. Uh, LEDs aren't warm at all, like incandescents or even CFLs, and LEDs can have a real problem with flicker in a, that can be very annoying and even harmful. Uh, Lighting is one of those technologies that moves fast, and the industry is having to update standards to match the technology, so we're all playing catch-up a bit here. But what we did this time around is we did a thorough revision in the core criteria since old standards that people might be familiar with, like CRI, which which tells you how the bulb renders color, um, they don't apply to LED technology. So we did those updates, and then we also updated the Flickr standard, too, because, again, we always want to focus on the impact on the occupants in the building, and in particular, the children in the building. Um, so we updated Flickr uh, to make sure that people are paying attention to it, and we added a discussion on the impact of Flickr on sensitive populations, such as people on the autism spectrum or those who have migraine. Um, The circadian lighting part is brand new to us. I'm still learning about it and coming to understand it. We don't yet have fully developed guidance on it. So, And as the credit gets utilized in actual projects, I'm sure we're all going to learn a lot. But the concept is that sunlight and our bodies are tightly connected through the wake-sleep cycle. Artificial lighting interferes with that um, by being too bright at the wrong time of day, for example, or being too dim at the wrong time of day. So... um, what we've done is we've integrated requirements that would make a lighting designer do measurements at different um, workspaces, meaning desks and tables, um, over a block of time in the day, usually nine to one, um, to make sure that the brightness level and the color level are appropriate for what would match the circadian rhythm. Wow, that's so awesome. I mean, it's so sophisticated, and yet, thank you so much for putting it into your core criteria, because I just feel like that's something that might be close to the last thing on anybody's mind, um, (laughs) whether designing either a remodel or a new school, so I'm glad that that's in there. Lisa, I want to talk to you about 
energy conservation. And a lot of people understand that it's a great way for schools to save money. But a lot of times I see schools opting for a behavioral management method in order to conserve energy. I'd love for you to talk to us about the energy management system and submetering section of the core criteria. Uh, sure. Um, firstly, for those of you out there who are unfamiliar with behavioral management methods to conserve energy, uh, this involves implementing a policy throughout the school that re- requires individuals to be responsible to turn off lights or unplug or turn off computers and equipment or man- manually manage thermostats um, at different times of the day, or any type of unpredictable methods involving human error, uh, CHIPS recommends automating these types of procedures to achieve optimal outcomes in energy efficiency and cost savings. Um, An energy management system, or EMS, is a way of automating energy efficiency measures by making it easier for facility managers to control their building systems and to reduce human error. Um, Today, most manufacturers include an EMS system with new HVAC systems, including installation and making sure that it's appropriately configured. Without an EMS system, or if it's not properly configured, the results can be uncomfortable rooms, less than optimal ventilation, or higher than expected energy use. So you might ask, if EMS is a standard practice, then why is it included in the CHIPS criteria? So firstly, we include in our we we include in our criteria an in-depth explanation of the critical elements needed for appropriate configuration of the EMS system, mm-hmm. bringing particular attention to lowering operating costs. And secondly, a critical part of high performance is that the building be well maintained and operated. So Chips provides specialized training for facilities managers to help them meet high performance oh, standards. Not I just, love that. Not just when, you guys have all not, the resources and all the training. I just I, I can't emphasize enough what a fan I am. While we're taking a quick commercial break, folks, to open a new tab on your web browser if you're listening to us online, and uh, and check out chips.net. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you've all tuned in. In case you're just joining us, our guests today are um, Elizabeth Crouchide and Lisa Dunneback. They are uh, the Managing Director and Communications and Membership Director, respectively, of the Collaborative for High Performance Schools, also known as CHIPS. And their website is chips.net, that's C-H-P-S.net. And we're talking about their brand new core criteria, 3.0. If you want to help create a school or a school district that has optimal conditions for learning, this is the place to go. This is your guidance. So, Elizabeth, um, one of the topics that it's become a pretty big deal on Go Green Radio lately. We've had several shows that deal with this. It's stormwater management. And I would love for you to talk to us about the stormwater and sedimentation management section of the core criteria. Sure. I live on the East Coast, and we are well acquainted with downpours and flooding. So this topic mm-hmm. is near and dear. Um, most people think about pollution and soil getting into rivers when they think about stormwater management, but it actually helps with air quality, too. And think about it. Displaced soil and particles can get into a building. They can become airborne once they're dry, or they can be tracked in on the bottoms of shoes. So that's important to keep in mind, too. Our approach to stormwater is to be aligned with federal requirements that Um, utilize best management practices, or BMPs. And sometimes BMPs are locally required, too. A locality might have stricter requirements. And we, of course, allow for flexibility for that local version of the criteria to be used. Um, BMPs are a great technique for protecting water bodies and keeping soil in place, and they can be an adjunct part of keeping mold and mildew from forming in the building. So, again, that indoor air quality piece comes into play again. Um, not every location needs BMPs, of course, but they really make a difference where they're, where they're needed. Permanent BMPs, which those are done um, for the ongoing operation of the building, um, like drainage around the dumpster area where trash is disposed of, can become a learning element and be integrated into science and nature curriculum. So school teams can get creative and install tiles or plaques near drains to alert students to where the water goes and to remind them not to litter, for example. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. Lisa, back to you. Even though we've all known about reduce, reuse, recycle for however many decades, I mean, it just seems like my whole lifetime, managing waste on campuses is still a big, daunting task. Um, And a lot of people don't understand why that's so, but it's true. Um, Talk to us about the sections that are entitled Storage and Collection of Recyclables and Organics Waste and the other section called Food Waste Reduction and Prevention. Uh, Yes, these are exciting topics as they involve 
um, diverting a significant portion of solid waste that's generated by schools from, from landfills and incineration or transformation facilities. The CHIPS criteria gives credits to schools that function as recycling collection centers and or com- composting centers for organic waste, such as green waste from landscaping activities or food service waste. Food service waste, for example, is the single largest component of waste disposed in landfills and it, uh, where it generates methane, a greenhouse gas that is 72 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Um, reduction of food waste is the best way to reduce the damaging environmental impacts of greenhouse gas emissions. CHIP schools across the country are implementing a variety of innovative programs to reduce and even in some instances eliminate food waste. Um, some of these examples are composting for a school or community garden, uh, making donations to f- local food banks, uh, animal feed programs, distributing take-home meals from leftovers, and offering share tables for unwanted food. These programs are often school-wide endeavors. They involve everyone in the school community, including students, teachers, staff, and even the uh, professionals from the greater community. And they help students learn about healthy nutrition habits, waste reduction, recycling, and community-based environmental stewardship. Love it. Love it. So comprehensive. Again, the core criteria 3.0 that you all have developed, I just can't recommend it highly enough for schools and school district leaders to get a hold of because it is absolutely panoramic in scope. Every potential way that a school could impact not just the environment, you know, we talk about that on Go Green Radio, but also, you know, what we do to create optimal learning environments for students. It's all about, you know, the health and well-being of our students. Elizabeth, there's a section in the core criteria that's called um, facility staff and occupant training. And I think that's so important. Talk to us about that section. This is one of those requirements that's so simple, so basic, and yet absolutely critical because the best building out there is only as good as the people who use it makes sense, right? You can design and construct the ideal learning environment, and if the teachers don't know how to work the light dimmers in the classrooms or the special shades on the windows, um, who's going to suffer? It's going to be the children in the classroom. Uh, Or if the facility staff person in charge of the heating system doesn't know how to work the controls, then everyone in the building is going to suffer from an uncomfortable building. So in order to sustain good outcomes, what we do is require that the design team provide adequate training to the school staff and educators at the time the building is first occupied. And um, it's typically done by what's called a commissioning agent. That's someone who inspects the building to make sure everything is installed and calibrated correctly. But it could be done by another qualified person, even someone on school staff. Um, This requirement is part of what we consider to be the whole package of making sure the building remains a high-performing one. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I know that that's true. I mean, um, I've seen in school districts where they've put a lot of time and effort into even just something simple like providing recycling bins. But if people don't know what goes in them or custodians don't know what to do um, when it's time to empty them, the whole system falls apart. Um, You know, we had a question from one of our listeners just come in and I want to pose it, see what you guys think. We know that CHIPS uh, standards are not the only ones for schools. There are others. Uh, You know, there are some lead standards for schools and things like that, other organizations. But 
Talk to us about why chips, you know, might be the preferred one and, and what advantages there are to the chips standards. Elizabeth, you want to take that? Yeah, I would be happy to take that one. It's a great question, and we get it all the time. Uh, I'll start by saying that CHIPS is distinct from other building rating systems because we developed our criteria entirely for schools. So our, our all of our requirements, all of our guidelines, all of the process that we expect school teams to go through is really organic to the school design and construction process. And that's important. Um, the second thing that makes us different and why we think we really are good for schools is that we make the district consider what's going to happen with the building in the future. Like I talked about uh, just a moment ago regarding training, we want to make sure that when the people move into the building, they know how to use the building and they know how to keep it in good, high-performing shape. So um, we have a lot of elements um, that are really policy and not just strictly green building, the traditional green building in the sense of um, environmental practices. And then lastly, it's our focus on the children and what happens with people in the building. Their well-being, their safety, their productivity is extremely important. And so that always guides us. That's our beacon that we follow in everything we do. Well, and I want to thank you both for the work that you're doing. I want to thank everybody involved with the Collaborative for High Performance Schools. Your work is vital and your work is so timely. And even though I know that you started this almost two decades ago, this organization has been around a while. The need for what you're doing is no less. In fact, it's greater uh, than it ever has been before. And so I want to make sure all of our listeners, again, know where to find the CHIPS Core Criteria 3.0 just released, go to chps.net and that's where you'll find everything you need to know. Thank you to our guests for joining us. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.